Hello, everyone. This is Tomahawk Talk, the podcast. I am your host, Brett Rutherford, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Gary Putnick. Gary, we're a day away, or if you're listening to this on Tuesday morning, the Marlins are back. It's been a weird week and a half, uh, learning about the outbreak within the Marlins clubhouse, and ever since, I think, baseball fans across the country have kind of been on the edge of their seat on whether or not the season is going to continue. Even though there might be another outbreak within the uh, St. Louis Cardinals clubhouse, as of now, baseball is still being played in a lot of places. Uh, but again, that could, that could change any day. We're, we've talked a lot about baseball. We did a season preview. Last week, we had Alex Krejcik on to, to go over the Marlins outbreak. What are, what are, where's your optimism at? Are you optimistic at all? Well, they did a good job of containing it. And thankfully, I think my optimism really lies in that like the Phillies aren't having an outbreak or any other team that the Marlins may have played, whether it be the Braves or the Phillies, aren't like blowing up with cases right now because that just shows that baseball isn't that much of a super spreader sport that we may have thought because everyone touches the ball or maybe their protocols with using the baseballs and throwing the balls out after usage is working. So I think that's really positive and also that the Marlins are starting to kind of formulate a roster now and we have this kind of weird team that we've put together, whether it be with some minor leaguers few of the guys that were on the 30 man originally and a few signees that we've brought in like Logan Forsythe. So it's going to be a weird team, but I don't think they're going to be out of it completely because we do play the Orioles. So we might be competitive against them. I could expect them to maybe split the four games that we take that we play in Baltimore, but that's just a very optimistic look at it. Gary, I, can I don't tell know you all about been, the Orioles. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've been following, Gary. The Orioles just swept the Rays over the weekend. Sorry, I've been a Dodgers fan for the past few days. So the that's Orioles been... <laughs> are hot. Hey, uh, and you, the, Mar- the Marlins are also we, – we were in first place for all of last week. It didn't just happen until like yesterday true. where the Braves surpassed us for number one in the East. So I believe also we're one of two teams in the all of MLB with one loss. So yeah. the Marlins are hot as well. For sure, and, and you just heard him, but he's joining our panel. He's back on tonight. It is the always wonderful Austin Reynolds. Austin, uh, your, your Braves are on right now. Looks like Mike Soroka just suffered a, a rough injury there to his foot or his leg, and uh, the Braves are now losing 3 nothing to the Mets, and our lead story is, is about the Mets, and we'll get to that in a second. But, Austin, more importantly, uh, besides that Soroka injury, how are you doing, man? I'm doing okay. Um, trying not to focus too much on the Soroka injury because it's still so recent in my mind, literally like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> but I mean, like, like w- we've won five games in a row, we being the Braves, uh, took the series against the Mets, rebounded nicely against the Rays at, at Truist. Um, so Atlanta sports looking up for now, but happy to be back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's looking up because you don't have to watch the Hawks play basketball. They're not in the bubble. So I find a lot of enjoyment in watching Trey Young put up 30 <laughs> points in a loss, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you do. And uh, the New York Mets, man, uh, we should have had a Mets fan. Actually, we shouldn't have. No. I think it's more fun to, to talk about them when, when, when they can't defend themselves. But the New York Mets are at it again. This one isn't necessarily their fault. Uh, but yesterday, their star outfielder slash designated hitter, now that the DH is in the National League, Yoenis Cespedes, opted out of the 2020 season. But at the beginning of the day, you know, a lot of players are opting out of the season. But at the beginning of the day, put, based on a statement that, a, that the Mets put out, people were very concerned, and rightfully so, about Yoenis Cespedes' health and well-being. 
the Mets put out a, a statement, and I need to find it, um, but I will stall until I until I pull it up. Um, well, the, the statement was something along the lines of they don't know where he is. They've called his room, and they cannot find him, and he's at large, so to speak. So, I mean, when I heard that, I was like, what the heck is going on? Because I, it took me a second because I didn't realize that the Mets were away in Atlanta. So I first thought, I was like, oh, shoot, he's not, like, just sleeping in at his house. He's just not in his hotel room, and they know it. Right. And, and news like that uh, is, or statements that are put out like that, not usually followed up by good news. Mm-hmm. And no one was really wanting to speculate, but we were all just concerned about Cespedes, a guy that is a much beloved baseball player uh, that's had a very weird career with the Mets, and it just got even weirder. Uh, he, he was injured in an accident on his ranch that involved like a hole in the ground and potentially a wild boar and like a dirt bike and like all these other things. And, and he missed like all of last year and he hadn't been, he hasn't been healthy in a long time this year. It looked like he was back. Uh, he had a, maybe a more secure role within the Mets lineup. Now that the designated hitter was added. And then yesterday just doesn't show up to the game. And we find out later that he just left uh, his hotel on the road. Uh, and had spoken to maybe some players and maybe someone within the Mets organization, but word had not made it around that he was opting out. He told his agent, I think he told a couple of his teammates, but the Mets early on in the day just thought he wasn't showing up to the game and were very concerned. And ultimately he was opting out. And this is a cluster uh, all the way around, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, and it's just a PR blunder on the end of the Mets. Why are you going to come out and say all these things when you could probably go around and talk to a lot more people within the organization? Like maybe talk to the players, say, hey, did any of you guys talk to Ioannis before coming to the park today? I mean, there's stuff, there's checks that you could go through before coming out and saying, hey, we don't know where he is. He might be somewhere and we don't know where he is at the moment and kind of just hope for the best. So I just, it blows my mind how little the Mets kind of really thought this one through. I don't know if that was Austin, if that was your thought process with it too, or, but that was mine. Yeah, that was one of the things that was most striking to me is that, like you said, the Mets didn't kind of check their bases before putting out a statement like that. But this whole situation is just so bizarre that it doesn't really surprise me. Just, uh, I, I believe Cespedes was actually photographed at, I want to say Lenox Mall in Atlanta, mm-hmm. like while the game was going on. So that just adds to the fire of, this is all so odd. I, I just, I've never seen anything like this. It's hard well, to I, th- I thought it was actually the Cumberland Mall. Isn't the Cumberland Mall right across the street from Truist, pretty much? It is, yes. It might have so been Cumberland, I thought it actually. may have been there because I would assume they're staying at the Omni, which is in center field mm-hmm. at the park. So I figured that would be the most logical uh, mall for him to go to, considering yeah. it's almost walking distance. I, I yes. got a statement pulled up and the original mm-hmm. statement put out by Brody Van, Van Wagen and the Mets general manager said, as of game time, Yoenis Cespedes has not reported to the ballpark today. Uh, he did not reach out to management with any explanation for his absence. Our attempts to contact him have been unsuccessful. When I read this, when I saw this on my Twitter feed, like my heart dropped. I thought yeah. something bad had happened to Yoenis Cespedes. I don't think anyone was in the wrong for making that assumption. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it almost seemed like, uh, uh, you know, the Mets just saying, like, this guy is missing. We don't know where he's at. We cannot get a hold of him. He's not in his hotel room. That's a worrying thing to put out. And then they say, well, we have reason to believe he's in good health. Without, still without saying that, like, he's, like, we know where he's at. They just said he, we have reason to believe he's in good health. 
what does that even mean? I mean, yeah, exactly. How do you say we think he's in good health, but we don't know where he is? I mean, you kind of have to have one to know the other in that sense, really. I mean, it doesn't, they, those two things go hand in hand. So, I mean, it's, it's backwards how the Mets think, and I don't, I still don't get it. Like people say the Marlins are incompetent with their front office and so forth, but the Mets, they've, I don't know, they just always, they never cease to amaze me. Yeah, and, and in putting up that statement that said we have reason to believe that Cespedes is in good health, he's safe, whatever, I feel like the Mets kind of added an unnecessary second step there because, like, at that point, they had the information to know that I, – I would like to believe that they had the information that he was opting out, his life is in no danger. Why not just come out and say that and put everybody's fears – like, get them out of here? Exactly. Yeah, yeah no, it's just a weird situation. I don't know what led to Cespedes' decision to opt out. Uh, I don't, uh, or the the fact that it was so sudden. He's not the only player that's opting out since the season has started. Lorenzo Cain of the Milwaukee Brewers uh, decides to opt out, but also Nick Markakis, who before the season started said he wasn't going to play, but now he's deciding that he is going to play and he's going to be allowed to be reinstated and be a, join the Braves roster. Um, so just a weird, weird thing. You know, there's we're not going to blame anyone for opting out. That's definitely not no, the case, but, of and we don't know how Cespedes went about handling it. Does he, is he supposed to tell the Mets or is he tells his agent who tells the Mets? I don't know how that works in a major league clubhouse. I don't know if anyone knows how that works in a season like this. There's a good chance Cespedes like texted his agent or called his agent and said, I'm opting out. Assumed that his agent was going to pass that information along to the powers that be. And that just never happened. Again, that's all speculation. Like, I have no idea what happened, but just an all-around botch situation uh, that was bad from a PR standpoint and, and just makes the Mets, who are an organization, for one reason or another, always seems to get laughed at. And I, and I try not to do it that often because I enjoy a lot of the players on the Mets and I enjoy the way they play baseball. I enjoy watching them. I've got a live stream up right now of their game against the Braves. But, I mean, just completely botched all the way around here. It's I, I can say for a fact that I enjoy watching the Mets kind of fumble around every now and then, speaking from an NL East point of view. I, I think Austin probably would join me in that sentiment. It's one of my favorite pastimes, yep. Lowell Mets. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it, they're, they've always kind of been the little brothers of Major League Baseball. They play in New York down the street from the Yankees, who've won 27 world championships, and uh, the Mets have won two. They haven't won one since 1986. You looked at what happened back in the 2015 World Series where Matt Harvey pitches a stellar game, convinces Terry Collins to put him back out there for the ninth. The Royals go on to win the game in the World Series and, you know, little things like that. Now the, 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 um, the Will Ponds are going to sell the team and Mets fans are all excited that they're under the grasp of the uh, – they're, they're escaping the grasp of the Will Ponds. Then that deal falls through and now it sounds like A-Rod might be trying to buy the team and, with Jennifer Lopez and a different ownership group and not sure if that's ever going to happen. And uh, the, the Mets, they are an easy target, but they've got some really talented players, Pete Alonzo, Jake DeGrom, uh, two guys that played college baseball here in the state of Florida, at uh, Florida and Stetson respectively, but just completely botched all the way around. Uh, guys, we've got good news. Uh, this summer has been a, a very weird summer content-wise on Tomahawk Talk. You saw us do trivia, and we haven't done it in quite a while. I'm not saying it's it's retired. Um, I've only got a few more shows left here, you know, on Tomahawk Talk. Maybe we do it once or twice more um, before I'm out the door. Uh, but the one thing that we've been lacking from a content standpoint is Florida State Talk. 
not, you know, not by any fault of ours, but the fact that there really hasn't been much to talk about when it comes to Florida State when everything around college sports has been shut down. Now, obviously, Mike Norvell and company, uh, or Mike Norvell and Marvin Wilson, gave, created some content for us earlier on in the summer in a way that I don't think anyone wishes they had, um, but that did happen. We talked about it a lot, and now we get some real football news to talk about. So when, when the ACC or when the Big Ten announced that they were going to a conference-only schedule, Brett McMurphy also reported that the ACC was looking to finalize a deal that included a conference-only schedule. And that was not officially announced by the ACC until a couple weeks ago. And it's not a conference-only schedule uh, for the most part. I mean, it is, but you still are allowed to have one extra game. Um, but it's got to be with either within your home state or there's another way you can pull it off. And it's not, not quite clear where Florida State's going to be getting that extra game. If they do it all, there's a chance they, they just play 10. Um, but it's not going to be coming against the Florida Gators because the SEC also finalized uh, that they are playing conference-only schedules. And the uh, University of Florida president, I think, voted against – was it the president or the AD or both? They voted to, to – they were one of the schools in the SEC that voted not to play out-of-conference games. So there will be no Florida, Florida State game. But we've got a new Florida State schedule, and uh, it is a doozy because they obviously, with the conference-only schedule, lose West Virginia, Samford, not Stanford, Samford, Boise State, Wake Forest, Boston College, Syracuse, and Florida. And they add Duke, Georgia Tech, Virginia, North Carolina, and Notre Dame. Gary, just initial thoughts. How? How, do, how does the ACC do this? I mean, Florida State, I thought, had a favorable schedule from Mike Norvell's first season, a, a respectable one, say the least. And now you take away Wake Forest, Syracuse, Boston College off their schedule, just speaking for the ACC schools, and you toss in UNC, who was good, Virginia, who won their division, Duke, okay, that's fair, not a great team, and then Notre Dame, not to mention, not to forget uh, Tech on the way, but you give Florida State and Notre Dame the new ACC school. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit ridiculous. Let's talk about Notre Dame first. So, obviously, they are an independent school when it comes to football. They play in the ACC and pretty much every other sport, except for hockey. I think they're in the Big Ten and hockey. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the ACC, they play in all the other sports except for football, where they've remained independent for, like, their entire existence. I expect after this season them to go back to playing independently. There's, like, that's not official. But I'm, that's just my expectation at this point, given everything we know about Notre Dame and how they like to run their football program. They very much like being independent. But they've played for I don't know how many years, maybe closer to 10 seasons, a f- four- or five-game ACC schedule every year. The ACC has kind of helped them build their schedule in exchange for all their other programs playing within the conference. But they have not become a full member. And at the same time, Notre Dame, which is almost always a top five brand in college football, and maybe even a top three brand in college football, has all of their home games broadcast by NBC in a, in a, in a ridiculously ludicrous TV contract. And the ACC, until this year, doesn't see a single dollar of that. Now that that year, this is going to change. This this year, that's going to change. That revenue is going to come in. That is going to help the conference. And although I think a lot of fans within the ACC have reason to resent Notre Dame and how they've kind of pushed back on becoming a full fledged member of the conference in football, 
Austin, what do you think like the NBC contract and the revenue that Notre Dame can bring in as a whole would mean for the conference? I mean, especially in this bizarro college football season impacted by COVID, if it were to happen, um, it would be huge for the conference because, I mean, individual schools are taking huge losses. We saw Florida State Athletics cut 25 positions a couple weeks ago. Um, so any amount of money that could come from this Notre Dame NBC uh, contract revenue sharing would be huge, honestly, it's even for a conference as big as the ACC is. Yeah, and I don't know long term if that deal with NBC would have to be uh, like, I don't know if they can hold on to that long term with the ACC having a contract with, with ESPN. Yeah, I, I really don't see that happening. I think it's just a one-time exception because Notre Dame has kind of been pushed into the ACC this year. So uh, assuming things go back to normal next year, I don't see this contract having any further influence. But this, this year specifically, it's, it's very beneficial. Which is another reason why Notre Dame might say, yeah, we're going to just go back to being independent. We'll yeah. play in your conference this year. You're saving our season. Here, take a little bit of our TV revenue um, while we play games and play for a conference title in a conference that we're not even really in. What kind of timeline would that be, by the way? Having, say, Notre Dame versus Clemson for the ACC championship? That's probably the direction we're headed in. I know there's a yeah. couple other teams that have a chance. And another one of those teams is North Carolina, which is another team added to Florida State's schedule. They're coming to Doe Campbell Stadium. Uh, they're coming to Tallahassee. And they're going to be led by sophomore quarterback Sam Howell, who for yes, a very sir. long time, up until National Signing Day, was committed to the Florida State Seminoles. He had an incredible freshman season at North Carolina. Gary, I can see your reaction. This, I mean, more than Notre Dame game in Virginia, who beat Florida State last year on the road, this is the game that I think is going to haunt a lot of Florida State fans this season. This, this one might be one of the more impactful ones because this can sort of tell if Florida State got it right or got it wrong by letting him slip through our fingers. So, I mean – they went, he led the team to a seven and six record last year. He was one of the leaders. I think he may have set a school record or an ACC record or like something in passing yards. I mean, he was phenomenal there and they're solid teams. I mean, they've been building up a solid team. Mac Brown's done a good job recruiting this off season and looking into even further recruiting classes. He's picking up some, some solid players and starting to make me worry about the Tar Heels over there and a sport other than basketball, which is surprising. <laughs> Yeah, Sam Howell, 3,641 yards as a freshman, 38 touchdowns mm -hmm. in, in seven interceptions. Uh, and, and that was just as a true freshman under Mac Brown, who has put together some of the best recruiting classes that North Carolina has ever seen. They're returning some really talented players besides Howell. And this year and probably next year, North Carolina are going to be competing for a spot in the conference title in the conference title game. I have, I'm not saying they're a contender to win the conference, um, especially not while Trevor Lawrence is at Clemson. But this year, I mean, with there being no divisions, and I haven't looked at their schedule. I don't know if they play Clemson and Notre Dame, but they've only got to have the second best record in the conference. So I can tell you their schedule right here. So for their home games, they're going to have NC State, like always. They'll have Notre Dame. So they got Notre Dame, but that's going to be in uh, North Carolina. They pick up Syracuse. They got Virginia Tech. They got Wake Forest. They have Boston College. They have Duke, Florida State, Miami, Virginia. So I really do believe they have a favorable schedule. I mean, they're, really, they're only real tough games, I think, from what I can see on the schedule. Notre Dame, Florida State, Miami, maybe Miami, and Virginia. So that's a pretty solid thing, solid schedule for me. 
Yeah, Sam Howell's records broke the North Carolina single-season passing touchdown record with 35. Yeah. Uh, l- l- uh, the NCAA true freshman passing touchdown record with 35. The Carolina freshman passing touchdown. The Carolina freshman passing yards, completions, and attempts. And the North Carolina touchdown to interception ratio. He had 28 more touchdowns than he had interceptions. A truly incredible season. It's just the beginning. And, Gary, I don't even think you need to see this game to know – uh, obviously, Florida State wish they would have had Sam Howell. Really, Taggart wishes he would have had Sam Howell. Mm-hmm. Um, that that was one of the biggest losses, uh, you know, for the Willie Taggart era. It was part of the fact that he, you know, didn't sign a quarterback in two years at the helm and the two recruiting classes he brought in. You go back to Walt Bell, who was the offensive coordinator. He was recruit. He was the main recruiter for Sam Howell. And when Walt Bell knew he was going to be out the door and head into UMass, he was negatively recruiting Florida State to Sam Howell on his way out the door and it, that made it even though Howell remained committed to Florida State up until signing day I mean it was pretty obvious that he was going to flip that he was not coming to Tallahassee one after watching what took place on the field in Tiger year mm-hmm. one but two you know Walt Bell leaving walking going over to UMass you knew Howell wasn't going to follow him there instead he stays home goes to North Carolina plays for Mac Brown and puts together one of the best freshman seasons uh, not only in ACC history, but in college football history. And, uh, yeah, that uh, – breaking it down, like, through the schedule, that's a loss. I do not mm. see Florida State beating North Carolina. No. I don't see them beating Notre Dame. And the other three games, like, they'll probably beat Georgia Tech. I can't call Duke a lock at this point. And yeah. Virginia is probably a loss, too. There's, it's a winnable game. They, lost, they don't have Bryce Perkins any longer. Um, but that is a winnable game against the Cavaliers. And uh, Austin, this schedule, I mean, could it have gotten any tougher for Florida State? Only if you, uh, only if teams were allowed to schedule non-conference opponents more than one. Like, the ACC could have put, I don't know, Alabama, Ohio State on our schedule. Like, that's, that's really the only way that I could see this getting any tougher than it is. Because it's like y'all have said, the ACC put winnable games off of FSC's schedule and replaced them with, potentially the hardest teams that they could schedule FSU for. I mean, just thinking about how the team is going to be impacted by this in year one of Mike Norvell's regime, it's, it's really concerning, honestly. I, I don't know if this could lead to a shorter leash for Norvell, like Willie Taggart eventually had. Um, I really would hope not, considering all the unprecedented factors that have gone into this season, but it's just nothing that you want to see for a first-year head coach. This is truly a year zero for Mike Norvell, and I don't yeah. think this schedule is going to have any impact on his future as Florida State's coach. Uh, I don't think the uh, – especially with more budget cuts coming with Florida State football, I don't expect many people uh, – I don't, I don't think many people expect Norvell to win. No. The question is, and always will be, how many games can Florida State win? And as we inch closer to the start of the season, which – it really doesn't feel like football season's about to start. You know, the NBA and NHL playoffs haven't even begun. You know, baseball just started their season. In in my head, it's going to be exciting if we get all these sports playing at one time. But in my head, it's not close to football season. And I know things are being delayed, but we're not that far off from, from the start of the season. We're into August now. And I kind of want to just go, in, like, the expectation. I mean, like, Gary, how many wins – and, and I want you to be unbiased here. And, and how many wins is realistic for Florida State? 
realistic i'd say five and five is realistic realistically thinking i think i've just written out the schedule and wrote win loss win loss over teams that like i'd clemson i'm just giving you my unbiased this is right off my top just looking at it it's clemson loss georgia tech win unc loss pittsburgh win uva loss duke win with a question mark louisville win with a question mark miami I'm I'm going with that right now. Miami's a win. NC State's a win. Oof. Notre Dame's a loss. So that's a very optimistic six and four. Very optimistic six and four. But I think five wins, you can be realistic and you can be happy with a five-win season for this kind of year. For a whole COVID year, first year, whatever you want to call it, five and five, acceptable. I'm thinking four and six. Where do you where do you have the loss coming in? Do you have them lose to Louisville and Scott Satterfield? Louisville and Miami. I don't think they can block Miami. I don't think they're. I think Miami is okay. just going to have too much talent. And and they're like again, this is year zero for Mike Norvell. They they didn't even get mm-hmm. a full spring. They're not yeah. getting a full summer, and they're not getting a normal fall camp. It's not a knock on what Mike Norvell has done. It's the fact that this roster already wasn't talented enough. Like, they weren't talented enough to compete in the ACC this season. It was another rebuilding year, like the third straight rebuilding season. And now taking all – and all these other schools are dealing with COVID too. So don't get me wrong there. The fact that this was Mike Norvell's first season, he had two freshman quarterbacks that were going to be competing for the starting job. I think it's going to go to James Blackman. Again, practice hasn't started. Training camp hasn't started. So it's hard to, to, to determine that at this point. But given that he's got the experience going into this season – I expect him to start at least to, to the beginning of the season. Yeah, you could either go with him, Travis, or maybe Tate, just because Tate had a little bit more experience in the fall or the spring. Sorry, but even that's I'd say Tate and Chuba are long shots for this year. Travis and James are probably your two front runners at the moment. Because at this point, you know you've got to make, so you look at you look at Chuba and, and Tate Rodemaker, Chuba Purdy and Tate Rodemaker, the two freshman quarterbacks that are coming in. Do you want to waste a year of eligibility on either of them in this season? No. Now they're pr- neither of the like the chances are very high that that both of them that both of them finish their careers at, at Florida State. It'll probably be one or the other. One will go on to transfer elsewhere, depending on who's going to take the most playing time. So do you, do you play one and 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 maybe the other sticks around for a year or two, and if you, you can keep them both around, or do you sit them both? You've still got uh, James Blackman and, and Jordan Travis. Uh, I think there was a reason, and, and again, uh, this is a very incompetent Willie Taggart staff, but I still hold like true that there's a reason that Jordan Travis did not play until the Boston College game, uh, which was after uh, Taggart was gone. Um, but with that being said, like I, I think Blackman's the easy answer here for no other reason than he, he's been in the program for, for long enough. He's got the arm strength. He's got the arm talent. And again, I'll, I'll keep saying it. You know, if you're going to use the Sun Bowl as a way to measure James Blackman, that's just not very fair to him or anyone on that team because that game was a glorified exhibition. Austin? I feel the exact same way. I mean, I've seen way too much criticism thrown James Blackman's, thrown James Blackman's way because of that Sun Bowl game. Everybody has ugly games. Sometimes they're just nationally televised. Sometimes they're meaningless games like the Sun Bowl was. So just heaping criticism on him for that is kind of unwarranted. But I, I do think the starting job is his to lose um, because just like you said, the experience factor, 
Um, I also don't see either of the freshman quarterbacks using up a year of eligibility this year just because the program wants to stick with what they've what has been established in pre- previous regimes. They just feel more comfortable with James Blackman at the helm. I, I believe that's their best chance of winning, and probably they do too. Yeah, going back to Blackman, I don't think he's a great quarterback. I've never said that. I don't think anyone that. does. No. And so when we defend him, it's because a lot of people think that he's a lot worse than he is. And yes. you look at that Sun Bowl specifically and what James Blackman's going through. And it's important to realize these are all college-age students. And I know they're football players, and I know what you want them to be, the, these big bad guys. And I think James Blackman is a true competitor. What he's been through at Florida State. He comes and he's recruited by Jimbo Fisher. And in that first year, thrown to the wolves after DeAndre Francois goes down in week one against Alabama. That was a season that Florida State was expected to make it to the national championship game. They were playing the biggest you know, kickoff game maybe ever between Alabama and Florida State, number one versus number three. Then when Blackman comes back after a hurricane, he gets to start in the first game at Doe Campbell Stadium against NC State. Uh, and they ended up mm-hmm. losing that game. He has an okay freshman season. He goes to Death Valley and damn near beats Clemson. Then you go, and Jimbo Fisher is, is up and out of here. He's at Texas A&M. You bring in Willie Taggart. Taggart doesn't give him the time of day. Uh, it gives DeAndre Francois the start the entire first season. So Blackman's sitting on the bench. Then he gets to, finally gets a chance to go in year two against a team that really didn't improve at all. It's a completely new offensive coordinator. So James Blackman, you know, I know the offense didn't change that much in terms of scheme, but James Blackman gets a completely new offensive coordinator and doesn't even finish year two as the starter before Willie Taggart's fired. And now he's in the Sun Bowl, and Odell's still the head coach. They, you know, it was pretty clear we were moving towards uh, – we might, we might have been moving towards hiring, you know, Mike Norvell at this point. But he's about to be, have his, his third coaching staff. Uh, he has no idea what his future is. It's been riddled. He's been playing behind a bad offensive line. He's been playing with some bad football teams. And I think he just tried to make a lot happen in that Sun Bowl. And it just didn't work out. And he got emotional on TV. Um, and it's okay to be emotional on TV, especially in a, in a football game. So – when, when we defend James Blackman on this show, it's, I'm not here trying to say that he's the quarterback that's going to take Florida State to the promised land. I don't think he is. I've actually said that, I went, like last year when we were previewing the football season, I've said that there is not a good quarterback on Florida State's roster. I'm still not convinced that there is now. Obviously, you've got two incoming freshmen, but they're probably not going to be good day one. You know, they need time mm-hmm. to develop. Uh, but James Blackman, I think, is the guy for the job at this point for Florida State. I'd love to see him get, get one more chance, even if it doesn't work out, because of how tumultuous uh, his career has been in, in Tallahassee. Uh, Gary, any final thoughts on, on the schedule or the quarterback situation? Obviously, we haven't even started training camp. So some of these storylines we're making up out of thin air. Well, I was going to say, if you want to put more into perspective our – relationship with James Blackman. I was the leader of the Alex Hornibrook fan club for the whatever the all last season. So, I mean, that's just where I stood at that point in the season. But then again, I don't know anything about football and you can kind of probably tell. <laughs> well, no, but you look at that. I know. Like Blackman, Hornibrook, who is not a good quarterback either. Yeah. And, <laughs> and Blackman had to deal with all that uncertainty when Hornybrook came out in, in what game did he come in? The NC State game? Yes. Yes. And like and one his one or was like his one of his first passing plays he threw a crossing route for a touchdown. Yeah, and against like a terrible NC mm-hmm. State secondary. And I don't was it was it Terry or Helton that scored or was it Helton. Matthews? It was Helton. It was Helton. 
Helton, who like created that touchdown with just his pure speed, because yeah. he's one of the fastest guys on that team. He probably might be the fastest guy on the team. And then Alex Hornibrook, you know, you get the, the student section chanting horny, horny, horny. I hope that we don't get in trouble for saying horny on the show. But um, <laughs> I'm, sorry, like, that was, I'm sorry, that was me leading the chant there. <laughs> yeah, but James Blackman, who like had been like he had been playing against a terrible offensive line that entire season. Mm-hmm. You know, Hornibrook comes in and gets a little bit lucky against oh. a terrible NC State defense, and all of a sudden, like everyone's thinking, okay, why isn't Hornibrook our quarterback? And then you have the same thing with Jordan Travis comes in, runs one touchdown in against Boston College. And it's like, well, where's Jordan Travis been? Why do we keep playing James Blackman? And I don't know. I think it's unfair to the guy. Yeah, it really is. Because he really did get the short end of the stick in every single scenario that you just ran through right there. And every single time, I just feel bad for him because he doesn't get a real fair chance in a system that he was coming in to come for, to play for. Because, I mean, you said it first, he got recruited by Fisher. And that's a pro-style offense. Blackman's a pro-style quarterback. He's not meant to play these high-tempo, running-gun kind of offenses. And that's also where it comes from. And I just feel bad for him that, like, he's been in this situation. I'm surprised that he hasn't left. And, like, I really oh, – yeah. I applaud him for sticking through it and having that kind of stick because a lot of guys in this day and age would just say, screw it, I'm out. They don't want me here. They don't want me in this system. I don't like this system. So if I were him, I would have left by now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once again, I respect him for staying because that shows that he made a commitment to Florida state. He said, I'm going to go here for four years or whatever amount of time I'm here for college and I'm going to do it. And he's done it so far. And I applaud him for that. And I really do respect that. Yeah. I would have left after year one with Taggart when he just didn't see the field at all. And they played Deandre Francois mm-hmm. uh, the entire season. I would have said, you know what, you know, this is just not what I signed up for. Um, I signed up to play for Jimbo Fisher under a different system. And, and I thought that I was going to be the next guy up. And that just didn't happen. And it's like not unusual for quarterbacks to transfer. Like I said, odds are Purdy and Rodemaker, not both of them aren't going to finish their careers in Tallahassee or at least at Florida state. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot can happen between now and uh, the start of the season with COVID-19 and potential positive tests. And we're seeing this in other sports, Florida state's going to need a deep quarterback room right now. They've got four quarterbacks on scholarship, they've also i don't know what walk-ons they have they've also got like wyatt rector who's like he's I think he's a tight, end, tight end yeah but he could fill in you don't have cam Akers who could who could play some quarterback um, don't even so, have cam laburn now i was gonna say yeah, yeah. Oh, let's talk about Kayla. that yeah we, we can talk about that for a quick down. second floor state's running back room as far thin, as i know thin 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 <laughs> there's like two scholarship running backs one of them's a freshman lawrence to yep. i think you're correct on that can someone fact check me on that? I am checking it at the moment. Yeah, I mean, Laburn, is he a guy, Gary, that you ever expected to finish his career at Tallahassee in Florida State? Based on what we saw in his first year after that first play against Virginia Tech, that phenomenal first play that I stepped into the bathroom during, <laughs> um, I I thought we were going to see more of him. I was hoping to see more of him, but we didn't. And then right after that season, I was like, okay, he's gone. I mean, when you play that way that you did in the first game and you have that explosive play and you have that potential, you're not going to sit behind Cam Akers, the guy who's going to get a million touches a game for the next couple seasons. And he stayed through it, and now he's gone right when Cam leaves, when he's most likely going to be the number one running back there. I mean, other than obviously you have um, Joshua Corbin – transfer from texas to say oh, Corbin, right and he's eligible yes he's eligible yeah, he to play is. so obviously right now i got him probably as my number one back at the moment but 
I would say I would still I would have given it to Kalen if he was still here. So I it was a weird situation. I maybe he just didn't connect with the coaching staff. That that would have to be my only guess at the moment as to why he's not here anymore. So they yeah, bring and, in... and I mean in in some of the uh, the releases that we've seen from other sources, I've I've seen that he has had off the field issues. Oh, yeah, I am not aware of these off the field issues, mm-hmm. but. I don't know what those could be. Yeah, and I don't think we're gonna we're gonna speculate on, on yeah, those. No. Um, I'm not trying to do that. You've got a plenty of players, more than I thought, that are on the roster that are capable of of of, of functioning at running back. So you've obviously got Jayshon Corbin, Jakai Douglas is another freshman that was brought in out of Louisiana, Deontay Sheffield, which I believe he is not on scholarship, but I could be wrong. Uh, Lawrence Tolafili, uh, the freshman out of Pinellas Park. You've also got Trayshawn Ward, Ladamian Webb. Uh, Raekwon Webb, these are not, you know, guys that you expect to play. And then Corey Wren, who is a freshman, uh, he was, like, committed to Florida State as an athlete, but he is probably going to be the fastest guy on the team. Yeah, he easily. easily get snaps at running back this season or receiver. I have your answer to how many scholarship running backs are currently on Florida State's roster. All right. And it was just Kalen. Well, wow. you got to Demo- Philly. I mean, I'm reading a Democrat article that uh, Kurt Weiler wrote July 9th. So, I mean, that was then maybe we've started. That are on campus at that point. Yes, but as of right now, from the article that I saw July 9th, Kalen was the sole scholarship running back on the 2020 roster. Okay, because okay, oh, you, you had oh, Toa Philly. It was who was on the team last year as well. Okay. That was the okay. other qualifying factor. Yeah, because you've got Corbin, who is on campus, and he is eligible. Yes. And then you've got Toa Philly, who is coming in as a freshman, a four-star freshman. It was supposed to be him and uh, Knighton, Jalen. Is it Jalen Knighton? Not Jalen Knighton. Uh, the other running back that swapped uh, flipped to Miami. Um, mm, yeah, I think it was uh, nice from yeah from uh, Deerfield Beach. I yeah, believe that's exactly. where he went from. Yep. Mm-hmm. And but they also had Toa Philly in the class out of Pinellas Park, another really talented back. Uh, Corey Wren, who I think is listed as an athlete, but will get snaps at, at running back. Um, but yeah, it's it's thin and it lacks experience. Corbin could have, uh, have Sheffield. Sheffield's on I don't believe he's on scholarship, but I'm just saying no. another a running back who has some experience. Sheffield has some <laughs> he's experience. He's functional. Playing. Yeah. You can put him there, but you don't yeah, want to. For sure. Yeah. So, uh, Laburn, uh, a guy that, I don't know, just from what we've heard and, and what we know about how he fit into the program, just wasn't expecting him to to finish off his career. I, I always kind of just assumed he was, was going to transfer at some point. And this is, well, I don't know if he, he hasn't announced where he's transferring yet, but he's not no longer with the team and like no matter how you slice it that's a loss for Florida State I don't know how big of a loss it is but it's a, it's a loss I mean it's just even less continuity behind an already questionable offensive line so that's it, it's just an awful recipe for this upcoming season I think unless one of these new running back running backs pops then I would expect the ground game to be pretty dismal yeah, and you you look at like that's gonna be hard. What happened yep. with Cam Akers like shouldn't have happened. Like he shouldn't have been that good that early on and throughout his career. The freshman season he put he had behind that offensive line in twenty seventeen, you know that just doesn't happen. And and it did, and that's why he got drafted in the second round. That's why he's gonna go play in the NFL for the Rams. And I don't know if right now on the roster Florida State has any NFL type talents um, at running back. It could happen with Toe Philly. He, he's young. Uh, he's gonna be a freshman, but but we'll, we'll just have to see. That's the, uh, the other big piece of news for coming out of Florida State football. Let's talk hockey a little bit. So the NHL is getting underway. Uh, they're also going with the bubble 
as the um, as the NBA has done, as Major League Soccer has done, as NWSL has done. Uh, Major League Baseball has not, and they're dealing with the consequences of that now. Sure. Um, but uh, National Hockey League is playing in two bubble cities, not in the United States. So they're the National Hockey League. They're full of Canadian teams, and their bubbles are in Canada. So all the Eastern Conference teams will be in Toronto. All the Western Conference teams are in Edmonton. And, uh, wow, it's 7 nothing Mets now. Austin, Ooh. sorry about it. Oh. Hey, the Marlins might be back in first place. <laughs> did I, did I spo- are you watching? Did I spoil a home run? By, by like, two seconds, yes. My stream <laughs> is a little behind. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was – Coming into this game, I was okay with dropping it because taking three out of four from the Mets, fine. Uh, sure not, not like this. The sure last place Mets. <laughs> I know you guys both care that Wilson Ramos is on my fantasy team. <laughs> um, anyway, just, just back drive to the stake in even deeper. Uh, NHL, Bubble Cities, Toronto and Edmonton, they took things a little differently. So in the NBA, like all the teams were playing eight games to finish their quote-unquote regular season. I know the schedules were all altered based on teams invited to the bubble to determine their seating. The NHL is doing things a little differently. So, Gary, why don't you break down the format a little bit uh, for what's going on in the NHL? All right, so I'm going to start from the top and work my way down. So the top four teams in your conference, um, Eastern Conference, it's going to be Boston um, – was it Boston, Tampa – Capitals, Flyers. Yeah, so those are the top four teams in the conference for the East. And those four teams are going to play uh, round-robin games under regular season rules for at least least overtime. So we can get into that a little bit later, but they will play round-robin, three round-robin games once against each other. So like the Bruins are going to play, they already play the Flyers, they'll play the Capitals and the Lightning. And whoever comes out with the best record will be the number one seed and then so forth. So two, three, and four. And then after that, that's when the real playoffs will begin because then five through 12, so usually it's only eight teams per conference that are allowed into the NHL playoffs. Three this teams from each finish. division and two wild cards from each conference. Correct. So it's pretty much top eight. Event. It always kind of ends up being the top eight teams. It's very rare Absolutely. that you don't get that. So um, this time they've just said, okay, only the conference pretty much, and you're just taking the top 12 teams. So the Panthers made it, the Rangers made it, the Islanders made it, the Canadians, I think the Canadians are the 12th seed. So they just yeah. barely squeaked in under above that line. And so now you have to play, if you're one of those teams playing in the qualifying games, you have to play a best of five series. So for me, this is the Florida Panthers. We're playing the New York Islanders at the moment in, well, at least our game two will be tomorrow. And you play best of five series first, three advances to the playoffs. And once you guys, once both teams advance out of these series, then you'll have real playoffs, best of seven series, normal, and then you just go from there. Just you go quarterfinals, semis, uh, conference finals, or no, you go quarterfinals, conference finals, and then championship. So then you'll have that there. So it's, I think it's a good format because a lot of people, what we enjoy about playoff about hockey is pl- specifically playoff hockey and the intensity that comes along with it. And instead of like how the NBA, they're just kind of easing their way back into play, the NHL saying, screw it, let's just go to straight playoff hockey. And I kind of enjoy it right now. So, I mean, I think it's a fun format to start. I'm, I know you have your questions and problems about the round robin, Brett, but I, I enjoy it so far. Yeah, I, 
I give I'm giving every league the benefit of the doubt when it comes to returning and how you're going to format things. I've I'm always a proponent of like the integrity of the game and awarding the championship to the right team. And I make plenty of unorthodox arguments when it comes to like I've always said that I love how in European soccer there's no playoffs. Uh, everyone plays the same schedule, and I enjoy the competitive balance of that, where every team's playing the same schedule. Whoever wins the most, they're your champions. I think that is a, the best way to determine who the best team actually is. But this year, it's like it's such a weird year. You're, you're looking at Major League Baseball, where every team might not even play the full schedule. You're looking at the NBA, where not every team was invited back to the bubble where I think only one team had been mathematically eliminated from the postseason in the NBA, maybe one or two others, but I know Golden State was. I think the Timberwolves were as well, but they were, they were the only two for sure. Right. But, and there were all these other teams that mathematically had a chance, even though realistically that chance was probably, you know, next to nothing, but weren't invited back to the bubble for the NBA. Now you look at the NHL and I have a couple issues with it, but again, I think it's enjoyable. I think it's going to be exciting you got to look at the Boston Bruins. And I don't give the Boston Bruins credit a lot, being a Lightning fan, but they had the best record in the Eastern Conference. And they were by far, from the start of the season to the end of the season, or to the shutdown, the best team in the Eastern Conference. Now they're forced to play in a three-game round robin against the next three best teams in the East, which were, at the time of the shutdown, the Lightning, the Capitals, and the Flyers. And they could end up going from the best team in hockey, probably, to the number four seed, going into the Stanley Cup playoffs. And as of now, that might be the most likely, you know, outcome because through one round of the round robin, everyone's played one game. They're the only team without a point. So they lost to the Flyers four to one. The Lightning beat the Capitals in a shootout today. So the Lightning get a couple points and the Capitals get a point for losing in the shootout. Now Boston's in fourth place in this round robin. And, you know, you could say, well, they could have just beat the Flyers. But after they put out a full season's worth almost, of, of some amazing hockey, uh, it's pretty unfair that uh, a quick turnaround like this in three games could, could see them as the four seed. And then you look at the, uh, the teams that are five through 12. You know, the Pittsburgh Penguins have to play a five-game series now against Montreal. Pittsburgh Penguins were, again, one of the best teams in hockey and we're going to easily make it into the Stanley Cup playoffs. They might have, like, I don't know how close they were to mathematically clinching it, but they had to be pretty close. And now they have to play an extra play-in series. That, again, is a little bit ridiculous. I think it's exciting. I think you're giving more teams the chance to make it into the playoffs. And from, like, watching the game, from that standpoint, like, that's, that's exciting. With that being said, uh, you know, the, it's just not as fair as I think it should be. And even though I'm okay with it, I am going to criticize it. And uh, hopefully the Lightning don't get screwed over by any of this, you know, this, this new workaround as they, as they get closer to the playoffs. I think for this – or Austin, you're up. Unrelated point completely, but Travis Darno just hit his first home run in a Braves uniform, and I'm proud. I love, I love Darno. He, he, I'm always going to be a Darno guy, and yep. uh, I'm, I was really upset that the Rays weren't able to get him. But I think $8 million a year is a little too much, but love to see that he's, he's smashing the baseball. Just picked him up, up on my fantasy team, so that's a good. I just cut right him now. last week, so maybe uh, I made yeah. the wrong decision. True, but okay. So I wanted to jump back in on the point. So the relating to the higher seed playing the lower seed in these qualifying best of five series, um, you really should be able to find out who's the better team with that. I mean, if the Penguins really are the better team, they should win this series. I mean, that sounds stupid and simple, but. I think it really is true. I mean, but also you kind of also, like we said, you kind of take into account like 
the Penguins, I think, did have some of the more uh, – I think they had a lot more positive te- COVID tests when uh, things first went down in March than most other teams did as a whole almost. So they may have been feeling some residual effect from that. But still, I still think the Penguins are a much better team than the Canadians. And I think we can all agree, other than Shea Weber and Carey and uh, Price over there in net, Penguins are top to bottom a better team on paper. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I don't – and Yeah, so it, definitely. It's tough. 100%. Yeah. And so, I mean, it was an overtime loss they had in game one. You can scratch that up to dumb luck. And I think right now they're actually winning one nothing against – yeah, one nothing. four minutes left in the first period. So, they'll bounce back, I think. I don't think the Penguins are going to have that big of trouble. Sidney Crosby is the, arguably the best player ever skate on the ice in the NHL. So, I think he'll prove his worth, so to speak, in this series. But, I mean, I – I love this for me because as a Panthers fan, we were on the cusp of making it and we odds are we probably wouldn't have made it as if things went normally this season. So I love this because it gives us that extra chance and it gives us a chance to get back at the Islanders who kind of screwed us in our last time that we met. I believe that was 2015 in the first round of the playoffs. So, and, but sadly though, the Panthers still just can't seem to get a call to go their way. And it's just frustrating (laughs) to watch. (laughs) we're going to talk a lot more about the NHL once the playoff field comes, comes into shape. And uh, just wanted to mention that today because we, we've kind of ignored it. We've talked about baseball's return, the NBA's return, and we wanted to talk about hockey, but going back to the NBA, uh, they had their first weekend back in the Orlando bubble. Quite honestly, my favorite viewing experience thus far um, in the post COVID uh, sports world with no fans for the time being, uh, the fact that it's an arena sport, I think, plays to its advantage that you might not even notice for with certain camera angles that there's, like, no fans in attendance and just what the broadcasters have done from a visual standpoint and an audio standpoint, too, to make it feel as normal as possible. Well, I think – I don't know. I've enjoyed – I think the NHL has been my favorite in terms of, like, having no fans in an arena because they've done a good job covering the seats, and I think it's also the way that hockey is – shown on television where it's more of the field or playing surface on your screens because like the nba i've been distracted by the virtual fan board behind it and like it's also distracting to look at the benches for both teams because it's not like everyone's normally in a line everyone's like kind of oddly spaced out to do uh go in uh compliance with the cdc guidelines so it's been a bit more distracting for me i'd say you know, the NHL is not though. Go, go, we'll keep oh, going back to the NHL. They, there was a fight today in the in the yeah. you know a full uh, like a full blown gloves drop fight, and, and mm-hmm. maybe that speaks to the fact that the NHL is allowing that. Maybe that speaks to why how Canada's handled the virus a little bit better. Uh, and you know, obviously in hockey, you can't socially distance on the bench with line changes like that's just impossible. Uh, you can't spread everyone out in the stands like you are in other think- sports. I think it would have been almost impossible to not or to say no fighting because that's just going to want to make guys fight more. I mean, that exactly. we started to see that with even the we, we even saw it with a little bit of the MLB the other week with Joe Kelly throwing behind Bregman and all that. I know we didn't touch on that too much because that's been all over the place in the media, but players are going to jaw at each other. Players are going to do what they do. They're not. It's just kind of second nature for them. Yeah, let's let's get back to the NBA and one of the stories I want to talk about. It's not, it's, I mean, we were kind of making it into a story, but I think it is a league-wide story. Zion Williamson, so he spent some time out of the bubble dealing with a family issue, uh, and he returned to the bubble and was able to get back in training in time to play in the Pelicans' first couple of games. 
but he has got uh, limited minutes, similar to what we saw before the shutdown. And now it's kind of become the storyline. Like I was watching the Pelicans game earlier. I think they're still in the fourth quarter now. And uh, like Zion played the first five or seven minutes, got subbed out. And the broadcasters were talking about how now he gets a chance to have a conversation with the trainer and talk to him how he's feeling. And I asked Alex, who you guys have known on the show, and mm-hmm. my, my, my former roommate, and he's, he's over at my apartment for a few days. And uh, I was like, is he injured? Like, what happened? He goes, no, I think he's just tired. And so they're talking about uh, him being tired. So uh, the Zion minutes restriction. Uh, Austin, smart move by the Pelicans in a season like this where they're still not competing for a title? I really don't think so because at the moment um, they are <clears> – <throat> excuse me. They are just a game and a half out of that ninth spot, which if they finish within, I believe, four games of the Memphis Grizzlies by the time everything is said and done, would get them into a in scenario. So not all hope is lost. And that margin would be even smaller in theory if they were playing Zion as much as they had before the shutdown. And I do get that he had to leave the bubble. He had, had some time to readjust, but in his limited action, he's looked good so far. And I just do not, agree with first off the prospect of playing him in short bursts but second off not putting him in at the end of the uh, the jazz game on opening nights like you can make all, all, all the points that you want about his defense not being up to snuff yet but he is one of the most prolific scorers on that team and i am sure that in those final minutes he would have been a great asset to get the pelicans their first win in the bubble so i mean they're, they're leading the grizzlies 95 90 right now which is great they're kind of clawing their way back into playoff relevancy, but it shouldn't have to be the the level of win or go home that it is right now. They should did, be playing Zion more. I get they want to be cautious, but now is time to be cautious. Did they say they can raise his minutes, or are they going to keep it at this weird burst? I don't know what they were calling it. Something burst. It wasn't burst management, yeah. but it was like burst whatever load something. Yeah, I, I and, forget the exact terminology, but I believe David Griffin uh, in whichever team the whichever game the Pelicans played before this one. Mm -hmm. Um, He did say that this would continue. These short bursts would continue for another game or two. So they play the Kings on Thursday and the Wizards on Friday. Maybe Mm -hmm. one of those two games, Zion gets featured a little more. But for the time being, he is just playing these short bursts at at probably the start of each quarter. I mean, he's killing it right now. He's got 17 points in 21 minutes with seven Mm -hmm. rebounds and five assists. So, I mean, he's the second leading scorer for the Pelicans right now behind Brandon Ingram, who just surpassed him in the past couple of minutes here when he is now 19. So it's, yeah, like you said, like, why would you take your best, your best weapon off the court? And it really hurts you. And it could, I mean, Hey, what if he's off the court for these next few minutes and the Grizzlies, I mean, now they're only four points back. So if you're listening live at home, that's the score right now. It's 97, 93. <laughs> and if you're listening live at home, you already know the final score. You have the opportunity to learn the final score, but yeah, I mean, it poses the question like, would his level of production or his rates of production drop if he plays more minutes? And, and mm-hmm. I think there's a valid argument for that. He would score more points because he's on the floor more, but he's just scoring at the same rate. Is he, is he playing as quickly as he can? I don't know the answer to that, um, but I, I've always thought you would like your best players to be on the court or on the field uh, for as long as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you would want to maximize that time that they have the ball in their hands or the opportunity to produce for your team. And, and that's just not how the Pelicans are playing it. There are probably multiple reasons for that. They're playing the long game with Zion. Even if they sneak into the playoffs this year, they're like, they're not going to win a title. Uh, they're going to come up against, I think either the Lakers or the Clippers in game in, in the first round or mm-hmm. another team in second. I don't know. 
I it's Lakers really... Clippers, I think, as of right now. Okay, so it's one of those two teams that they'll get. Probably going to be the Lakers. I know the late. I think they dropped a game to the Raptors. To the, but, yes. Um, yeah, but they're, but, they're like five and a half games clear of the Clippers right now. Yeah, so not to worry. Yeah, and and before we move on to our last little segment on the NBA, just uh, just quick quick uh, like message about Jonathan Isaac, who suffered a terrible injury. Uh, blew out his, his left knee, or his, I think it was his left knee landing off of a layup attempt and tore his ACL. Uh, terrible story uh, from, from a former Florida State player who was really coming into his own with the Orlando Magic, and he had dealt with a lot of other injuries, and he was becoming a really solid part of the mag- that Magic team, and now he's going to have to wait a little bit longer. Zion's coming back in the game, though. Zion is back in the game for the Pelicans. We'll see if he finishes it out. Who would have um, thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, maybe we, maybe they're listening. Maybe Alvin Gentry is listening to the – he's hacked into our Zoom. Um, but NBA, let's talk about it. Which team – we've only seen a few games. They've only been back for a weekend. A lot of teams have played one or two games, real games, since the restart. I know there were some exhibitions. Um, but, but Austin, I'll start with you. Like, what team has impressed you the most? I think it has to be the Rockets right now because, I mean, they had that incredible win over the Bucks last night. A couple of nights ago, they had that – ridiculously high scoring affair against the Dallas Mavericks. That final score looked like an all-star game score. Um, so not a lot of defense to be played there, but they have taken the small ball identity and really made it into something they can work with going forward. I mean, the, getting rid of Clint Capella, a lot of people thought that was the strangest move, getting rid of really the, the only true center on your team. But I mean, they played incredible lockdown defense last night, I believe. They outscored the, the Bucks like 16-4 to four over the last few minutes, locking up uh, Giannis whenever he would drive to the rim. It was just really strange to watch from a team whose identity you would not peg as being defense. And I, I really don't know if it's sustainable. We've only seen like the, the one or two good games from them. But just early impressions, I am they have blown my expectations out of the water. I, I like that them. pick a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, I've also another team that I've enjoyed or I thought has been playing very well is the Raptors. I mean, they came out, they beat the Lakers in their first game back in official play. And then today, most recently, they beat the Heat, who were the Heat were on fire on Saturday when they Uh took down when they. Yeah, no pun intended, but they destroyed the Nuggets by a lot. And today they were they shut down the Heat significantly. And the one part that really stood out to me is how they kind of limited the Heat's three-point ability. I know for the first uh, half, first quarter, the Heat were cold from three, and that's something that you don't really see. And Duncan Robinson, someone for the Heat that I've watched all year, obviously, he's been phenomenal. He's been arguably the best three-point shooter in the whole NBA. You could make an argument for that. And they held him to three points today against in the 107-103 to 103 win for the Raptors. So seeing them do that and then also seeing Fred, what was it Fred Van Vliet put, put up 36 36 points and then Siakam with 22 I mean they're going to be dangerous if these these two guys can stay hot like the way they are yeah Van Vliet's become my favorite player in the NBA and, and we talked about the Raptors last week when we previewed mm-hmm. some of the, the NBA restart and if the Raptors at full strength are a very dangerous team and could make another deep playoff run uh, this year if everything goes right for them my team is a team that they lost last night on the day of recording, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. And more specifically, it's, it's Giannis. And you talk about a player who was already probably the favorite to win most valuable player this season. But in their first game on Friday night against 
the Celtics. They won 119 to 112. It just proved, it further proved uh, how good Giannis is and how un, uh, undefendable he is. You just, you, there's no one in the league that can fully stop Giannis. And I don't know how many other players you can say that about that are healthy and in the bubble. I mean, you could probably say that for like Kevin Durant and LeBron James to an extent. Um, but w- with the way Giannis is playing now, that's going to be really hard to beat over a seven-game series. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how all the Clippers match up, if that's eventually the, the finals matchup. I think the Lakers would be the best matchup to try to stop Giannis. Gary? Well, I mean, the Bucks, for the Bucks, we saw in that game against the Rockets, they went uh, Middleton with 27, Giannis with 36, Brooke Lopez with 23. The next closest scorer, their fourth top scorer in that game, was Dante DiVincenzo with nine points. I mean, you cannot expect to win too many basketball games in the NBA with that top-heavy lineup, It's or especially with the guy with only three guys in double digits. And I know, like, we talked about it a lot, even with Florida State basketball, when they had a lot of guys scoring double digits, obviously you're going to win a lot of ball games. But when you had only two guys show up on a night for Florida State basketball, it didn't end up well. So it's going to be the same case for the Bucks here when they can only rely on Giannis. And when Giannis is forced to be the man, can they step up and can his supporting cast be there for him? And I don't think so. Yeah, uh, that, that's always been the biggest debate. And uh, it gets to a point that we're over a seven-game series. How much can you contain Giannis to where it even matters uh, what the other players on the team are doing? We've seen the top players in, in the NBA be able to carry a team by themselves. I mean, we saw LeBron do it with, with the Cavaliers in his last year. Different Eastern Conference. I think overall the Eastern Conference has improved since that point, and there's a little bit more competition for Giannis. Uh, but I definitely think he's good enough to to make it happen by himself in the East. Again, if he comes up against the Clippers or Lakers, especially if he's taking that team on his back through an entire like half of the, the bracket, uh, that's going to be tough. But th- they've just impressed me so far. With, with and I say they, and I mean Giannis. Uh, Middleton had uh, he, he's put up a, a lot of scoring the shooting could be a little better he could score at a little bit better clip and that would I think really help the Bucks chances but overall uh, they're still my pick to be the most likely team to win the NBA finals I, I picked them uh, on last week's show mm-hmm. um, Austin you weren't on last week do you have a pick to win the NBA finals there is a fair bit of bias behind this pick but the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, losing Avery Bradley, losing Rajon Rondo, those are huge hits. I mean, Rondo's not a game changer, but he is a valuable piece of rotation. And Avery Bradley is one of their most consistent closers. But I think that they're using these first couple games. You saw they didn't have the cleanest game against the Clippers. Uh, Clippers were down a couple rotation players, and the Lakers only won by, what was it, two or four points. So that's a little concerning, but... I believe they're using these first few games as kind of a tune-up for the playoffs. And honestly, outside of the Clippers, I would take them over any team in a seven-game series pretty convincingly. Lakers-Clippers is going to be the presumptive Western Conference Finals matchup. That's going to be like a spectacle. But I, I believe that they are going to get to the, the finals and win it all. I, I, I like that pick. I respect it. And I don't think that's, uh, that's too wild, especially with how, with how deep that team and how solid that team is. Uh, and obviously led by, by some stars. So uh, that is going to do it for this week's episode of Tomahawk Talk. Uh, a lot of stuff. We have to talk about a lot of different sports. We got to yeah. talk about Florida State football. We haven't really had a full show like this in a while, it feels yeah. like, where we've had it a lot of sports so to talk about. 
This oh, is the so most good. variety that I can remember in a oh long time. Goodness. It felt great. It feels almost normal, even though we're still doing it uh, from our homes. Um, but hopefully get back in studio as soon as we can. So just want to thank you guys for, for listening. Uh, you know, if, if you're enjoying it, I, I haven't really plugged it, but uh, you, you can subscribe to the podcast and get these episodes to, uh, downloaded directly to your device uh, if you're enjoying the show. Um, thank you to our Sebastian's, uh, our producer, Sebastian Anzoriana, who is not on tonight, but all the great work he has been putting in for Austin Reynolds and Gary Putnick. I'm Brett Rutherford, and we will talk to you guys next week.